Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner on day 143 of the coronavirus crisis. On the eve of Memorial Day weekend, our question tonight, is it safe to plan a summer vacation? Just make sure we're staying six feet away from their feet today. Part of Disney World reopening as we close in on Memorial Day. Tonight, what summer travel looks like across the USA, from planes to beaches to hotel rooms. Our intention is to uh, test uh, as many people as we can. More universities making plans for the fall, and it involves big changes in the calendar. I'm so sad and so worried for the other businesses. And what business looks like for workers as they go face-to-face with customers. This CNBC special report begins right now. Here's Scott Wapner. Welcome. Good to have you with us on this Wednesday night on a day when the S&P 500 hit its highest level since March. Let's get our first look right now at futures early, of course. Right now, though, green, albeit modestly, across the board. As for today, stocks rebounded from yesterday's sell-off. The Dow rising 369 points. Tech led the way yet again. The Nasdaq up 2%. The drivers there, Facebook and Amazon, both hitting all-time highs today. Airlines following the broader market higher today as well. But one key question faces that industry as the weather gets warmer. Will it be safe for passengers to travel this summer? Seth Kaplan of Kaplan Research joins us now. Seth, it's good to have you with us. Thanks for being here. Good to be here, Scott. How are you? That is the question. I'm good, thanks. Bookings are creeping up, albeit slightly. What is the experience going to be like this summer? Well, planes are filling up. Now, it's partly a mirage in terms of the total number of people traveling because, of course, airlines are playing the supply and demand game here, right? They've been cutting, cutting, cutting. And for a while, that wasn't enough. No matter how much they cut, the flights were still empty. Now, they're finally getting to a point where passenger demand is picking up a bit, albeit off those very low lows, and where flights are beginning to fill to a point that some people are complaining about a lack of social distancing. Airplanes, of course, not designed for social distancing. Well, you're leading into my next question then is, is it safe to fly? What would you tell people? In terms of your personal safety, and that's really one of two things you have to think about, it's really like being in any other room full of people. Look, if you put on a mask and you're sitting the same distance on a plane from somebody as you're standing from them in a supermarket or, or anywhere else, a restaurant as those begin to reopen in some parts of the country, no real difference on the airplane. What is different is 
is you're going to visit somebody else and whatever you might be carrying, you know, even if you feel like you're uh, of an age and an overall health that you're willing to take the risk for yourself, you're also taking that risk for other people. So you have to think about that. I, I know personally, my family, uh, you know, I would get on board a plane. I would take my wife and our young daughter on board a plane. But are we willing to go visit older relatives in our case? Maybe not until there's a vaccine or at least a reliable antibodies test to know what kind of risk we present to other people. That's what I'm thinking about personally, what I think everybody should think about. can hear people jumping off their chairs saying, wait a minute, how can he say that being in an airplane is the same as being in any other room? You're in an airplane in a, in a confined area with 150, if not more, people with some a, a foot and a half away from your head, your well, face. I well, Scott, I guess I mean in a, in a room of 150 other people that size. Uh, no, absolutely. Obviously, in, in a bigger space would be a different story. I just mean there's nothing special about airplane air, for example. That's kind of a myth. But no, no question. You are sitting, even if the middle seat is empty, you're not six feet away from that other person. You're 18 inches away from them. You know, there was a study a couple of years ago out of Emory University. So th this predates COVID. that found that people sitting in window seats on airplanes get sick a little less often than people sitting in other seats. And there, too, nothing magical about the window. It's just that you're not surrounded by as many other people. And guess what? People who don't get up as much during a flight also get sick less. Right. Okay, so, yeah, yeah, I can bury just, my head. Uh, in, I'll bury my head in the window from now on. Well, why not? <laughs> why not one industry standard for how this flying is actually going to work? JetBlue today said they're not going to have the, a, a middle seat or at least someone sitting in the middle seat. Yet other airlines haven't come forward and, and said that. Is that a problem? Yeah, Delta has said at least through the end of July, it's going to add flights to the point that it can keep middle seats empty. But you're right. Most of them haven't said that. It's kind of like everything in this country, Scott. Uh, no national standards for when to close and when to reopen the economy. No national standards for airlines either. Canada uh, about a month ago said, hey, if you're walking through an airport, you get on an airplane, you need a mask, period. In this country, JetBlue, which you mentioned before, another thing they went first on was the masks. Most other airlines matched them, but Allegiant hasn't matched. It is encouraging people to wear masks, but it's handing out free sanitation kits, including masks, gloves, and wipes, which other airlines aren't doing. So it really is an airline-by-airline airline thing right now. I haven't even talked about getting food or a drink or going to the bathroom. We'll do that another night. So good to have you on our show uh, tonight. Seth, thank you. Likewise, a pleasure, right, Scott. That's Seth Kaplan of Kaplan Research. CNBC contributor Dr. Scott Gottlieb joining us once again this evening. He, of course, the former head of the FDA, now a CNBC contributor. Dr. Gottlieb, as always, good to see you. Good to see you. We are um, ready to get out, right? We've all been cooped up, but it's Memorial Day weekend this weekend. We're thinking about what kind of summer travel we'll, uh, we'll be in the mood for. What, what should we expect? What would you advise people as they're thinking about a summer vacation tonight? Well, look, I don't think we should preemptively plan for a bad outcome this summer. I think that there is going to be a seasonal effect on this virus, meaning that as we get into the summer months, as we get into warm, hot, humid weather, that will have an impact on viral spread. We typically don't see respiratory pathogens transfer that much in the summertime. Flu and coronaviruses typically don't circulate in the summertime. So we might catch a break in July and August, and we may see transmission break off, and we may be able to get back to more of the things that we enjoy and the risk goes down quite a bit. That's what I would hope for. Um, there will be some seasonal effect. We don't know how profound it's going to be. But we can expect viral transmission to start dissipating as we get into the summer. I will just say that shouldn't give us a sense of security going into the fall because the risk will pick up as we go into the fall. So if we do catch a break and July and August are light, we still need to be vigilant come September, October, November that this could come back. Royal Caribbean tonight, Dr. Gottlieb, canceling its cruises through July. Those uh, lead to more difficult questions, of course, about the willingness to take a cruise. 
maybe in, you know, in the later part of the summer, hotel rooms, rental cars, the airport experience itself. How should people feel about the kind of, uh, you know, personal concerns they may have as they're planning these trips? Well, look, there's a lot of variables at play here. So if we do end up catching a seasonal effect in July and August, we see the virus really dissipate. We can get back to doing some of the things we enjoy. Um, we'll have to see what comes in the fall. This will come back. Hopefully we'll have better tools. We'll have better drugs, better screening in place. We'll be able to control outbreaks. We'll know where the virus is spreading or where it isn't spreading. And sometime later in the fall into the winter, we may have a vaccine that we can start to deploy, at least experimentally. So it could be a very different risk situation heading into the fall and winter. We just have to wait and see. But I'm hoping that we can catch a break this summer. And as we reopen, even though we're taking some risk in reopening, people are still vigilant. They're still practicing social distancing and good hygiene. That dissipates the risk. And then as we get into the warm summer months, transmission breaks off. In 2009, as we said on this show, with H1N1, the swine flu, it was epidemic all the way into June. And then July and August, it sort of collapsed because flu doesn't spread very efficiently in the summer. And this should be the same. We should see coronavirus at least dissipate in terms of its spread and its efficiency in the summer months. You proposed, uh, you published a paper uh, today along with some others, Dr. Gottlieb, proposing a set of steps to speed the development of, of safe and effective vaccines. Tell us about what you wrote about today. Well, I think what we need to do is have a parallel process. Typically, when we develop drugs or vaccines, we have a highly sequential process where we go through the three phases of clinical trials. Then we scale up manufacturing towards the back end of that. Um, we do preclinical studies in animals at the front end of that. I think what we need to think about in terms of developing a vaccine quickly is to do things in parallel. So at the same time that we're doing some clinical work, continue to do the work in the preclinical models, the animal models that can give us information about the immuno immunogenicity of the vaccine, how well it's going to work, and also scale up that commercial manufacturing at the same time. So we need to do some things in a highly parallel process all at once, if you will, so that we can accelerate the timeline to getting a vaccine. And that's that's what the government's really focused on right now. That's what the FDA and the other people who are involved in this are focused on trying to, for example, scale up commercial manufacturing right at the outset and make those big investments um, in the large scale manufacturing. You're going to need to be able to produce a vaccine in the high volumes to inoculate the population. So that was the essence of what we were recommending in that paper in obviously more detail. I'll actually uh, ask you uh, to uh, stand by for me once again, Dr. Gottlieb. I'll come back to you in, uh, in just a second. A uh, step forward today for Apple and Google as well, working to create technology to trace the virus, allowing people to know if they've come in contact with someone who has tested positive. Our Deirdre Bosa following that angle for us tonight. She joins us live. Deirdre. Hey, Scott, well, contact tracing is seen as a key tool in the path forward in reopening the economy. So when Apple and Google, two of the fiercest rivalries in tech, announced that they would be working together on a program, it was seen as hugely promising. Together, they cover virtually every smartphone in the world. But as they got closer to deploying the actual technology, expectations are being scaled back dramatically. Today, they made the tech available for public health authorities, but... Uh, they say that it can't provide necessarily effective analysis. It can't actually tell them where an outbreak is occurring. And that's where Apple and Google and digital contact tracing at large run into a sort of catch-22. For it to work, 
it needs a large number of users to opt in and use it. But for people to want to use it, they don't necessarily want to hand over their personal location information to big tech and the government. So it loses its utility. Um, Scott, this is less of a problem, certainly in places like China and Singapore, where there are less concerns around privacy and location data. But certainly here in the United States and in Western Europe, this program is running into enormous challenges before it even gets off the ground. Absolutely. Uh, Deirdre, thank you. That's Deirdre Bosa reporting for us tonight. Dr. Gottlieb, I'll bring you back in. Wondering how we should think about contact tracing, the issues of privacy and other things that may crop up as we're trying to hire tens of thousands of people around this country. Well, look, we're going to have to do contact tracing if we want to try to contain this uh, spread going into the fall. We can do it the old-fashioned way by interviewing people who are positive, trying to find who they were in contact with, go and offer those individuals testing. Or we can use technology as a tool to help accelerate this. What Apple and Google built was basically a platform, a pipeline, if you will, to do contact tracing using electronic tools in a very de-identified way. So they actually built a platform that protects people's privacy. What that platform enables is to say that person A came in contact with person B, but it doesn't tell you where those two people came into contact, and it doesn't necessarily tell you who person A and person B are. Um, That information can be available to the user if they want it, if they opt into it. And so they built a platform that actually allows for anonymized contact tracing. It's up to public health authorities in terms of how they use that information. Businesses also need to think about contact tracing in the workplace because there will be positive cases in workplaces, and businesses are going to have to figure out how they get in touch with employees who may have been in contact with employees who end up being positive. And so, you know, you also need to think about contact tracing in the workplace, not, that, not just at a population level. Yeah, the clock's ticking, obviously. When do we need to start with, with the contract, contact tracing? Well, we should be starting right now. I mean, this is one of the measures you want to have in place as you reopen. And this, this sort of case-based intervention, trying to target individual cases as opposed to the population-based mitigation, which is what we've been doing, which is targeting the entire population, that's what you want to be doing. That's how we're going to control spread without having to resort to these sort of stay-at-home measures, these very onerous restrictions that we've been putting in place up until this point. So we want to be doing that right now. Um, hopefully, if transmission does dissipate as we get into the summer, you want to make sure that these tools really are in, in place in a robust fashion getting into the fall. And you also want to make sure you have better, in place better screening. The challenge going into the fall with the testing and the screening isn't necessarily going to be the platforms for conducting the testing. We're going to have a lot of platforms for actually running the tests. The problem is going to be where do you go to get the test? There's going to be a lot of places that don't want to do testing because they don't want the implications of having positive places cases, either in a pharmacy or even in a doctor's office. It may well be in the fall that when you call your doctor and you tell them that you have flu-like symptoms, they don't say come in. They say go to one of these special COVID testing sites and get yourself tested for flu and COVID. And if that's the case, if if it's harder for people to go get tested for COVID, um, fewer people are going to get tested. So we need to figure this out right now. How do we encourage testing and how do we build easy places for people to go get screened for this virus? You think there's a, the wherewithal tonight to tackle those uh, very difficult questions that you just raised, Dr. Gottlieb, that you say needed answer now? I think states are certainly thinking about this and working on it. I'm, I'm talking to the governors in Maryland, Massachusetts, Connecticut, um, New Jersey as well. Um, the states are certainly putting in place programs to deal with these kinds of challenges, the contact tracing, hiring the public health staff, thinking about using electronic tools to augment that. 
Um, where do we where do we go to get screened? How do we create testing sites and also getting testing into settings where you have at risk populations? That's really key because not everyone's at equal risk of getting covid. We know people in nursing homes are uniquely vulnerable and uniquely at risk. Also, people who work in certain professions where it's a high touch profession, you come into contact with a lot of people and you can't naturally social distance. So we need to get testing into those sites. Um, A lot of states are thinking about that. I've talked to the Connecticut governor yesterday. I was talking to him. Connecticut's working on that, my home state, on how to get testing into at-risk sites. These are the kinds of things that states need to be working on right now, and a lot of governors uh, are doing that. You're, you're a man in high demand, in- including uh, from our viewers tonight who have questions for you once again, uh, Dr. Gottlieb. I'll run through a few if I, if I could. Chris Munzo has a question for you. Florida's about to lift our ban on short-term rentals, he says. Our beach communities will be filled with travelers from dozens of cities. Is this a good idea? Well, look, we have to see what the risk is going into the summer. Um, You know, it's all going to depend on what the prevalence is and what the background risk is. If we have lower levels of risk, transmission breaks off, and we're doing good screening, and Florida has stepped up their testing, and so have a lot of other states, so we know who's traveling down to Florida, um, you know, maybe we can all take a little bit of a breather going into the summer while still practicing good social distancing and good hygiene, which is going to continue to reduce our risk. Um, I think it all depends on what ends up happening this summer. Um, hopefully we see the, the, the cases continue to drop. I mentioned how, you know, we, we've all been cooped up. We're, we're looking forward to getting out. And maybe this weekend is the weekend that many more people do because it's Memorial Day weekend. Matt Lozar asks you, Dr. Gottlieb, when should families from kids to grandparents feel comfortable getting together in groups of 10 to 20 people? Should they stay outside? Do they need masks inside? Well, look, things done outside are safer than things done inside. We know that there isn't um, the same risk of transmission to large groups outside as inside. Um, I think it all depends on your social group and how much you trust your social group and what kinds of circumstances they may have exposed themselves to and what kind of risks there are. Um, obviously, I, you know, I talked to a lot of individuals, ourselves. You know, People are starting to expand their social circles a little bit very carefully with people that they trust. And I think within a family you have a sense of what you can trust. We appreciate it. As always, uh, I know our viewers do as well. We'll see you tomorrow night. Dr. Gottlieb, thank you. Thanks a lot. All right, have a good night. This CNBC special report coming right back. I'm so sad and so worried for the other businesses. How one town's downtown businesses are banding together to fight back against the crisis that's attacking Main Street USA. Plus, how barbershops and auto dealers, companies that deal with customers face-to-face, are reopening. First, what the USA looks like on the 143rd day of the coronavirus crisis. the horizon for financial markets at pgim it's a question that over 1400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals specialized across asset classes but united in collaboration our teams provide global and local expertise our investments shape tomorrow today pursue your tomorrow with pgim a leading global asset manager
Welcome back. In our exclusive States of Play poll conducted with change research profiling six battleground states, 42 percent think businesses should be protected from coronavirus related lawsuits. Ninety two percent of Democrats in swing states favor wearing masks in public to 27 percent of Republicans. Seventy nine percent of Democrats believe we're returning to work too soon versus 12 percent of Republicans. On day 143 of this crisis, here are some more headlines on the virus tonight. Minutes of last month's Federal Reserve meeting show officials are worried about longer term economic damage from the pandemic. Tesla dropping its lawsuit against Alameda County in California over coronavirus restrictions, keeping the electric car maker from reopening. The company resumed operations earlier this month. And President Trump considering hosting the G7 finance meeting next month in the U.S., instead of virtually. Well, tonight we're meeting three business owners in Springfield, Ohio, trying to find their paths forward. CNBC's Andrea Day once again has their stories tonight. Here's Main Street in crisis. Springfield, we always say around here, it's uh, big enough to have a lot of big city amenities, small enough to know everyone. Everybody is so kind. A small town feel with all kinds of great culture. It absolutely hit us like a ton of bricks. We are in the alcohol business, so I do find myself having a couple extra pints a night just to relax and, and, and shake off the anxiety a little bit. If I have to hear the word pivot one more time, I'm going to puke. I can't just turn into a bakery overnight. We're brewing beer right now, gambling that will be open to some degree in June. We've continued with several days of carryout. But selling beer to go isn't enough. you got to have the on-site high-margin sales to, to make it. Our grand opening was March 6th and 7th. We had people just pouring in the door. We had like $10,000 of income in just those two days. But 10 days later, they were forced to close. It just really did feel like the door got slammed in our face and we're questioning and wondering and what's the future going to be like. We will do anything that you ask us to do. We won't frame your child, but we'll frame anything that sits still. Not far away, another business owner has a very different story. Today is the greatest day because today is Sloppy Joe Day. Everybody waits for this for the week. I didn't think we were going to do anything, but that drive through was my saving grace. It oh, saved us oh, yeah. from having to close. <laughs> With all the bad stuff that's going on, here I am doing really well. And I still can't wrap my head around it. When I look at the numbers, I'm like, where is this coming from? What is going on here? Right now, there's a meat shortage, and that worries me. I just had to pay double the price for the roast beef I sell here. I can't afford to do that. I am so sad and so worried for the other businesses. I think of my friends who have small businesses like mine, and it scares me for them. I just keep hoping and praying that things will come back sooner than they even think. It's going to be large losses this year. <laughs> That's all there is to it. Without the support of each other in this community, we won't make it. We, of course, wish everybody well. Tonight, we're also talking with two business owners going face-to-face -face with customers once again. We start tonight with Will Churchill's car dealership in Fort Worth, Texas. Will, it's good to see you tonight. Thank you, Scott. Good to see you. You were fully open as of Monday. How's it going? It's going good. You know, we were an essential business uh, on the service side. So we worked with a uh, split shift for probably the last 45 days. Um, service sales were down about 67 percent. And uh, now that we are moving back to uh, full operation, we are probably on the service side down 
down about 40 percent. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, how do you sell a car in the age of COVID-19 from the, just the, the process of a salesperson meeting with a potential customer? And how in the world do you do a test drive? Absolutely. So on test drives, we are not going with the clients on test drives. We are letting the uh, clients test drive themselves. Um, from a sales process perspective, we have put up, uh, they call sneeze guards. Uh, we put those up on all of our salesmen's desks. We've also done it on our service advisor's desk. So there is a plastic barrier between us and the clients. We also give them uh, a pin that's uh, a single-use pin. Well, I mean, it's just for them. You can use it as many times as you want, but just for them. And um, a lot of appointments and preparing before the client gets there to make it as minimal contact as possible. Yeah, things I'm sure you, you just never thought you'd, you'd have to be doing. How about demand? Do you, do you find that there's a lot of pent-up demand for automobiles right now? Uh, our sales are off about 50%, but the clients that are coming out are buying. Uh, we normally close at a ratio of about 25%. And with the COVID uh, and the clients that are coming out, we're closing about 75%. So the clients that are coming out are serious buyers, um, but obviously we're off about uh, 50% in sales. I'm guessing Memorial Day weekend is traditionally a pretty good weekend for you. What are you expecting this coming weekend? Uh, we think we'll carry that same 50% off. Memorial Day weekend is a huge weekend for us. Labor Day weekend, are, those are the two biggest weekends we have are Memorial Day and Labor Day. So we're going to be off. Um, we, don't, we, we don't anticipate we'll ever uh, fully get back to what we've lost. Our goal is just to you know, keep all of our employees employed and uh, minimize the damage. How about sticker price? More promotional than, than you otherwise would be and, and, and want to be? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the manufacturers are doing great rebates and they're being very, very, very aggressive um, on some of the models that we have. We're actually getting very low stock because the um, the factories haven't been open for a while and they're getting ready to start opening, which is a positive. So, um, you know, we're going to need some inventory at some point. We wish you well. We're going to check back in with you. You have a good uh, Memorial Day weekend. And again, uh, we hope you see a lot of sales. Thank you, Scott, very much. All right, you be well. That's Will Churchill joining us tonight. His car dealership down in Fort Worth, Texas. Meantime, Doug Campbell, he owns three salons in the state of Florida, reopening just a few days ago. Good evening, Doug. Thank you for being here. Hey, Scott, how's it going? It's going well, thanks. Give us your progress report. What city are you in, by the way, in Florida, and how's it been going? Uh, Pensacola, Florida, and it's been going uh, really well since we were able to open. The, the hardest part was uh, not knowing when we were going to be able to open. Uh, we were told... Um, the governor made an announcement on Friday at 3 p.m. that we could open on that Monday. And where the business that takes appointments and schedules people uh, made that a little challenging with that short of notice. Uh, but we were able to pull it off. So we're, we're happy about that. Good to hear up on the panhandle. So, so give me an idea. Put me in the salon. What, what's it look like when I walk in? Well, when you walk in, uh, you're going to be met with one of our front desk people. And they're going to ask you a couple questions. Uh, if you don't have a mask, we're going to provide you a mask. Uh, we're also going to ask you to sanitize your hands. Uh, we'll send you to the waiting room where we have everything spread out. Of course, all magazines, anything that you could touch or multiple people would touch are, are gone. Um, and then you would go through the process. Your, all your service pro uh, providers and everyone else uh, would be wearing masks. Um, so that's kind of the feel. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's different, for sure. That's for sure. I, you know, I think about these challenges facing uh, so-called face-to-face businesses uh, like yours you're working so closely uh, with your customers waiting rooms you have people are you allowing more than one person to sit and wait for a a, a hairstylist or how's that work okay so we'll let them come into we, we've got a limit well one of our salons is six thousand square feet so that one's got a little bit more room the other one's two thousand square feet it's a little bit more of a challenge 
so as long as we can keep them socially distanced, we'll allow them in there. Other than that, we ask them to wait in their car and we'll text them whenever uh, their, point, their service provider is ready. And we don't allow anybody to come with someone. They can't bring a friend. They can't bring the kids. Um, just we can't have that many people adding bodies and in motion to the, the situation. Yeah. How's the business uh, been do, uh, dealing with, with uh, the issue of, of COVID-19? Did, did you apply for a government loan? Did you get it? Take me through the finances a little bit about how you've been coping with all this. We did. We were able to uh, get the PPP loan. Uh, we're still waiting on our EIDL loan. Uh, the PPP was good. We were able to keep all of our employees uh, fully employed the whole time. They never had to do uh, uh, unemployment. Yeah, which was good, especially they've, they've had quite a problem. We know people that still have not received any money through unemployment. So we're fortunate to do that. But that kept our team together. We we're able to communicate. We we're able to do things. I did a lot of Zoom meetings. Um, so that was helpful. But uh, the process for PPP was confusing. You know, it was one of the new things. We were fortunate to be one of the first ones in. Uh, so that was very helpful. But then again, that's, you know, the, the, the unknown part of when you're going to be able to open and how long is the money going to last Um added to the stress to the situation for sure. Yeah. Uh, based on how I and, and a lot of people I know feel about their own hair right now, I'm sure you're going to have a lot of business coming up. We oh, yeah. wish you we've, well. been, we've been quite busy. We're <laughs> doing numbers like Christmas numbers, holiday hair numbers. If you know anything about our industry, fourth quarter is always the busiest. We're doing those numbers now. And people are just happy to be in there talking to their stylists and having the experience again. I'm sure. Doug, we wish you well. All right. Thank you. All Thanks, right. Scott. Take care. That's Doug Campbell joining us uh, tonight. Uh, from down in Florida. The CNBC special report coming right back. Next tonight, universities start making plans for the fall semester, and many are changing the calendar. See how next. Plus, the next big challenge for companies and the American workforce. This CNBC special report is back in two minutes. You seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Universities making new plans for the fall, and it involves rearranging the calendar, plus automating America, what it means for businesses and this country's workforce. This CNBC special report continues. Once again, here's Scott Wapner. Welcome back. In tonight's view from the top two airline CEOs and chief executives from two Dow components on their paths forward. We still see a very extended period of time with this uh, duality um, and a low occupancy in our offices so that we can uh, promote physical distancing. Um, and, and I think that reality is going to carry forward uh, for some period of time, uh, even as the kind of the hard lockdowns ease. And we see that 
around the world now. I think in time, everybody will figure out, I sure hope that they do, that this is incumbent on all of us to behave in a way that enables um, the economy to respond in a, in a positive way, in a sustainable way, so we don't end up taking two, step for, two steps forward, one step back. What we're doing right now is we are upgrading airplanes. So that route you just talked about has got bigger airplanes already started flying. Uh, we're also on a daily basis upgrade, upgrading 30 to 40 flights a day. That means putting a bigger airplane on to promote social distancing on any routes where we have an aircraft available. It would be almost, almost impossible to strip out the middle seat. Those, those seats uh, are called triplets and triples. And so they're actually built as a three-seat unit. So uh, you would have to reseat the entire fleet. So economically, over the long term, uh, it, it just doesn't uh, make sense. It will take a little while, I think, for people to uh, have, the, have the energy and enthusiasm to go back to theaters. But we do believe it's going to happen. You can't keep the American spirit down. You can't keep the American business climate down. We have to be smart and work our way through this downturn, but we have brighter days in front of us. From CEOs to university deans making big decisions tonight, Notre Dame announcing it will hold classes on campus for the fall semester, but starting in August. Paul Brown is the vice president of public affairs and communications for Notre Dame. It's nice to have you here, sir. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure. How, how did your president, Reverend Jenkins, and the board of trustees come to this decision? Well, it's been after uh, many weeks of very serious thought and advice from some of the, uh, the best medical experts in the country we could uh, bring to the cause. Uh, so it was a lot of study, a lot of thought uh, with people who, who could give us the best advice that brought us here. As I mentioned, so take me through this. You're going to start bringing students in in August and you'll end right. when? Uh, we'll end just before Thanksgiving. And the re what drove that decision was under a normal semester, the students in the middle of the semester, they would start on August 25th, in the middle of the semester, break for a week, disperse to all parts of the United States and around the world. That's about 10,000 students from Notre Dame doing that. Come back then, just before Thanksgiving, all those people disperse again. And after Thanksgiving, come back and stay until Christmas when there's another break. What those breaks do, the experts tell us, is bring these thousands of people back and forth, going out into the country and around the world, and come back with a likelihood of bringing pathogens with them. By, by concentrating the semester, getting rid of those breaks, starting a little early, August 10th, leave, finishing before Thanksgiving, we will diminish that risk considerably. Yeah. How's the classroom going to look for, for students? Different. They're, we're going to have social uh, spacing. So some class some class so where we might have uh, a small class, it would be, now be meeting in a medium-sized class or a medium-sized class in a large one. So we're going to have to use some other spaces to accommodate uh, smaller numbers of students occupying larger space. Curious, is, how will you handle an outbreak if there is one? Well, Father Jenkins and his team put in a, a plan 
where if there is an outbreak after we open, we have parallel at the same time the ability to return almost instantly to distance learning. And we could do that for all the students and require them to go home if that was necessary. But we also have it in place for those students we may need to quarantine. It could be a small number after we do testing when they return. Say those students can't go into a classroom, they'll be able to use distance learning or using basically an online computer to receive the same instructions that their fellow students will be re, uh, receiving in the classroom. Interesting. And aside from being known as a fine academic institution, obviously Notre Dame is known quite well for its athletics. So how are we thinking about athletics right now? Yeah, the Fighting Irish have that fight on their hands too. It's a little more complicated than the classroom, obviously because of contact sports. But at the same time, those are small, relatively small groups or cadres of students and we're, we're seeing if that can be addressed. Now, the, the, the associated problem is the stadium. Notre Dame Stadium uh, routinely gets 80,000 people at a game. Uh, we're not going to be doing that in the midst of a pandemic. But on the other hand, if we, had a, if we limited attendance, to you name the number, 10,000, 20,000, even 40,000, we'd have plenty of room to socially distance in a stadium that large. So you can actually foresee holding Notre Dame football games with some fans in the stands at this point? Well, it's, it's possible. Let's put it that way. We haven't reached a decision, number one, on whether there'll be football at all. We have to get to that uh, decision. Uh, but the stadium one, is, it's, a, it's a different decision entirely and one that we could see uh, I think the outcome is more easily reached because we have the room for social distancing. Understood. Mr. Brown, be well. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Take care. Thank you. Bye right. now. That's Paul Brown with the University of Notre Dame tonight. NBC News was allowed inside a Macy's in Atlanta as the store gets ready to reopen. Here's NBC's Blaine Alexander tonight. One of America's oldest department stores now forced to create a new way to shop. Is this going to feel different for customers coming back? Yeah, absolutely. We were given an exclusive look inside this Macy's in Atlanta, one of the first to reopen. In addition to masks and social distancing measures, new procedures for dressing rooms. So basically, I can come in, I can try on a dress, but it's not going back on the rack. That's right. We're going to hold it off the floor. So everything that goes into the fitting room, we hold off the floor, we segregate it, and then put it out at a later date. Same with returns, an urgent effort to make shoppers feel safe. In April, retail sales across the board dropped by more than 16 percent. Macy's Inc. had to furlough many of its 130,000 employees. Now the chain is doing everything it can to bring shoppers back. Some of the biggest changes at the makeup counter. I'm looking for a foundation. Yes. Can't try it on. Yeah. How do we make sure that it's the right shade? I could look at you, eyeball you, and give you like two shades that I think will be right for you. I will just demonstrate just to show you where you would put your eyeliner on your eyes. So the same type of tutorial that you would do on my face normally, yes. you would do on the pad. Do on, the pa on the pad, and you get to take it home also. Even before the coronavirus, Macy's and other traditional retailers were struggling. Back in February, the chain announced plans to close nearly 125 stores over the next three years. With more people choosing to shop online, how do you convince shoppers to actually come back inside of a brick-and-mortar store, especially now?
Yeah, I think coming back into our stores is also a source of entertainment, but it's also an element of convenience. Our customers still want to look and see the product that we have available. Today, Macy's has 180 stores up and running with all locations expected to open by the end of the summer. This iconic brand, an American tradition for more than a century, trying to pioneer a path through the pandemic. Blaine Alexander, NBC News, Atlanta. And here's what else is coming up on this CNBC special report. Many American companies looking to change how they operate are looking towards more automation. What that looks like next. Before the break, how the rest of the world is surviving day 143 of the coronavirus crisis. What a week on Mad Money. The Kramer COVID-19 Index. Up as stocks rally on Wall Street. Today's leading components, Inovia Pharmaceuticals, Spotify, Owens & Minor, Marvell Technology, and Slack. Watch Mad Money, 6 p.m. Eastern. Welcome back. Mr. 305, the music star Pitbull stepping up tonight with a business partner. He's working on loans for Hispanic American businesses looking for some help during this crisis. Whatever it takes to save Latino businesses in America, we want to do that. We put together COVID19BusinessCenter.com and specifically the Hispanic Business Center to get $10,000 cash grants, mentoring, resources, assistance. We know they're closing their doors, by the way, faster than any other segment of the population, and we can't let that happen. We're not here to talk about it. We're here to be about it. There is more money to give to them, and we want to make sure the right people get it. We've learned a really valuable lesson. How could you take care of your family, your community better? And it turns out that the answer is entrepreneurship. We want Latino families to take care of themselves, to build economic freedom and independence. So for right now, we got to get them through COVID. Why is it so important to me? I'm a first-generation Cuban-American from a family that fled from Cuba from communism. Me being the first one in the family born here in the United States of America instilled in me what opportunity is, what it is to control your own destiny, what freedom is. So we want to be able to help one way or another people be free in these times to survive, but like he said, also to thrive. That's Pitbull stepping up tonight. Companies throughout the country are talking about the need for automation to help keep operations running. Chris Nathan is the CEO of SDI Systems, an automation company out in California. He's getting increased interest, as you might expect, from companies looking to change how they operate. Chris, good to see you this evening. Tell me what kind of demand you are seeing. Hi, Scott. Uh, thanks for inviting us on the show. Um, yeah, we're seeing a tremendous demand from customers that uh, are anticipating a ramp up of business in the, uh, in the peak, traditional peak season. Um, based on the fact that they're anticipating maybe there will be some, some COVID crisis or some interruption of brick and mortar, uh, they, they need that additional demand. And so they're building capacity for that right now. I've been thinking a lot about this question. I'm wondering, how much do you think we're pulling forward demand from years down the road now because of COVID-19 in ways that we otherwise might not have done? 
Well, I, I think that most of this demand is being pulled away from traditional brick and mortar channels. Um, a, a traditional retailer uh, might have 10, 15, 20% of their business come from um, e-commerce sales. And I think what you're finding is that they're pulling that into that different channel. So I don't think it's pulling demand from a future from future years. I think it's just a shifting of demand into different channels. What kind of build out time are we talking about? This, this is not generally something that can be done uh, overnight. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it takes um, six to nine months to build the types of systems that we build that would enable a, um, a client to ramp up and improve efficiency in their distribution center. How about the cost? Give me an idea of, of going, uh, you know, not, if, if not fully automated, but at least more automated. What does that cost a business? I mean, systems can cost from a, um, a million dollars um, up to, you know, north of $50 million. So they're, they're big, uh, big investments, um, but paying big dividends and allowing those customers to really service their clients appropriately and, and deliver that one day, two day service or same day service in some situations. You know, the, the other side of this, uh, obviously uh, unavoidable to, to have this conversation, is the future of the, the worker, uh, him or herself, and how they're going to be impacted for years uh, if not forever, as a result of this push for, for automation. How should we think about that tonight? Yeah, I, I think it's definitely going to ch- it's going to challenge the workforce. Um, I mean, prior to this crisis, uh, the, the U.S. was experiencing, uh, uh, un- we were unable, the, the facilities that we were with were, were unable to hire enough workers at the, um, at the facilities that they want them in, and so we're investing in automation. Uh, Obviously, that's changed now with this crisis. There's going to be a, a massive uh, um, amount of people available. Um, but the, but the, I, I do believe that this automation will change the face of the employment landscape, no doubt. What kind of systems are, are we talking about? What, what kinds of jobs are more likely to be replaced, if you will, uh, faster than others now? Well, tr- tr- basic um, picking and placing, um, uh, movement, um, seeing a lot of activity with robotics, uh, moving a product from one place to another. Um, obviously, in the um, um, automated driving, um, automated um, movement of um, cartons and units around a distribution center. So a- anything that's that's really basic movement um, and relatively um, uh, re- relatively easy to fulfill with a, a traditional sort of robotic approach. Chris, I appreciate the time. Thanks so much for being on our special report tonight. That's Chris Nathan joining Thank us this you. evening. American restaurants operating through the storm. That is next tonight. Welcome back. As you know, each night we highlight restaurants operating during this crisis. You can tweet me at Scott Wapner, CNBC. Please use the hashtag. Thanks for the grub. Send the name and town of your favorite restaurant. You can even send a picture as well. Tonight, we highlight the Firenze Italian restaurant in Chicago, Illinois. Puglio's Brick Oven in Florham Park, New Jersey. The Hop Creek Pub in Napa, California. Jake's Seafood Restaurant in Hull, Massachusetts. And Fort Bend Pub in Indianapolis, Indiana. Appreciate everything you all are doing. 
On day 143 of the crisis, here are the latest headlines tonight. Moderna's chairman defending his company's vaccine data on CNBC today after a report said some experts were skeptical. Apple and Google releasing their contact tracing technology in three states have already signed up. Stocks rise the Dow up nearly 370 points. For all of us here at CNBC, I'm Scott Wapner. I'll see you tomorrow on the Halftime Report at noon Eastern. Please be well and stay tuned for Shark Tank, which is next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.